This podcast is a co-production of ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts. We're approaching the chalice tree now. It's a, we'll be able to get in underneath it. You know, it's a great shelter. The most infamous tree in Newmarket Island stands alone in a massive field of ankle-high green that just seems to stretch forever. It's huge. A big sycamore tree with a massive spread. It's as wide as it's high. This tree has got to be the height of, like, 10 adults. I'd say the tree, the tree is about 30 metres, uh, the actual canopy of it. And the branches are practically touching the ground on the outside. And that is the chalice tree. The chalice tree. It casts a shadow, not just on this land, but on the entire history of this land. You know, it is a, it is a, it is a, it is a revered tree. It's like a sacred tree. If you ask the people of County Cork, towards the south of Ireland, about this tree... What is your earliest memory of this tree? Well... I suppose I was only a young fella, you know, like all of us. We were all, we were all, we were always aware of the chalice tree. Yes, everyone is aware of the chalice tree. You know, I mean, any any person growing up in the country in Ireland would would hear the local folklore. But as to what happened here, everyone seems to remember it slightly differently. All I know, Mark, is that it was. Outside, And the legend is that during penal times, a priest was saying mass. There were two priests. Two or three? There, there was only two. Catholic priests. The priest was saying mass. Uh, a mass in secret. And one of the redcoats, the, the soldiers, came. Uh, someone who was supposed to be watching out for soldiers coming, fell asleep, and then... There was a raid made by the British... They were the first of the British Army to wear redcoats, and the tradition here is that the redcoats came down here and bayoneted those two priests. The redcoats came along, and the priest was killed. And killed him with a bayonet. There's one version of it where this tree was the tree that they were hung off of. Three brave priests were marked there. Another one is that they buried the chalice here to try and hide it. chalice was hidden in a hole, and that the tree grew out of the hole. Uh, that's probably not true, I would say. And their last words were a prayer for the land that they love best and we love still. But the most popular ending goes like this. And it was the soldiers that took the chalice. And took the chalice. They were looted on the spot. Plundered. And that's when the chalice vanished. That was until one day that chalice reappeared. In the days of the British Empire, objects were taken. Objects that tell us about the world today. My name is Mark Fennell, and this is Stuff the British Stole. In Ireland, uh, whether it's correct or not, an awful lot of Irish history is, it was something bad happening in Great Britain, if it was, something very bad was happening in Ireland. <laughs> it's generally how it pans out. Roughly, they kind of equate to each other pretty well. So this is Jerry. So my surname is McAuliffe. Actually, he's the fifth generation Jerry McAuliffe. Although, when it comes to that name... 
turns out there's a fair few ways to skin that cat. Yeah, so my name is uh, it's Jerry McAuliffe for Dearborn McAuliffe Asquilga in Irish. I grew up in a small farm, 50 acre farm in kind of North County Cork, kind of in between um, a town, and it's definitely a town. It's occasionally reported by the media as a village. It's a town called uh, Newmarket, and uh, and a village called Mealing, which is the highest village of me in Ireland. And there's a, there's another village somewhere in Dublin that's claiming it, but officially it's Mealing uh, County Cork. So, somewhere between Newmarket, the town that is not a village, and Milan, the village that is not letting you have their world record, was a farm. So I grew up, yeah, at a farm, a dairy farm. Yeah, kind of classic bucolic upbringing that varies onto the cliches when it comes to Irish stereotypes. Um, my granddad kind of inherited it through his wife's family. And then, yeah, and then my dad took it over in the 60s and then I studied hard and got a nice job indoors with emails because <laughs> uh, it was not for me. <laughs> Jerry is now in his early 30s. He lives in Dublin with wild curly hair, smart glasses that declare, I will not milk a cow if I can avoid it, which is good because Jerry's family no longer has that farm. What he does have is the memory of that tree. Okay, so, so, so on my farm, there is a very, very large sycamore tree. Uh, in the middle of a field by itself. It's this beautiful, it's the biggest sycamore tree I've ever seen. Um, um, and mostly probably because it's just out by itself in the middle of a field, it's not competing for anything. Huge tree, and it's called the chalice tree. It's been a focal point on my farm for like, when I was a kid, I remember in sixth class, a local historian brought us there uh, with all the other boys in my primary school. And, you know, we've had, there's mass said there occasionally. It is the site of, of an event that happened where two or three, depending on your source, Catholic priests were murdered by British soldiers. There's a, lots of local evidence about some, that something did happen there. There's a rough idea of where the priests were buried afterwards. I think there's a marker actually put up there in the last few years for them. And my dad, when him and his brother, I think, were doing up the house, they found this, what's known as a sword in my family. It's probably more of a bayonet that um, the local kind of a tale in my family that this was dropped by some of the soldiers that were there. All right, so already there are some physical clues that something happened. But this is a story, it seems, that has been told and retold and sometimes even sung in this area for so long that, well... The tale around that can change depending on it. Some people will say that this all happened when a mass was being said there, a mass in secret. So in Ireland there's a big tradition, they're they're called mass rocks because the majority of them were rocks. And these are just secret spots that people would have Catholic religious services on the fly, so to speak, and that this was the site of one of them. And then there's the most important part of this law that after these priests were murdered, the British redcoat soldiers are said to have taken something, an ornate silver and gold chalice, the cup from which you would drink the blood of Christ. Gone. People were killed, chalice was taken, it was looted, there was looting of the vestments is what was always kind of termed when I grew up, where they basically just robbed whatever kind of paraphernalia they came across for the for the celebration of the Mass. And the, char- and the chalice was passed to the captain who was commanding it, For hundreds of years, people in County Cork have been telling the sad tale of murder and theft. 
And then one day, this picture turns up around town, showing something over in Britain. Someone went to London, or immigrated there more than likely, and sent back a picture of this chalice. A silver and gold chalice, sitting in the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, the V&A, with a plaque dating it to 1590 that would make it one of, if not the oldest, Irish religious object ever found. They called it the Mount Keith chalice. I knew this chalice was in the Victoria Albert Museum and I made three attempts to go there to see it. The first one, it was just tied into um, actually a lads. A few of my friends went over to London to go on the piss, to be honest, when I was about 21 and I tried to do it the next day, incredibly hungover. Couldn't find it and spent most <laughs> of the trip there actually looking for the toilets, to be honest. Um, and then <laughs> went again maybe three years later and it was actually closed. And then I went in 20. 16, and um, I just got irrationally, I live it probably the way to describe it, I was just incredibly angry inside there. And I suppose it's kind of, like, it's such a weird feeling just to, uh, like, I was very angry, yeah, a lot of rage for no reason, poorly defined, couldn't, like, pinpoint anything. <laughs> it was a very individual experience, it's a very personal experience in the sense that this is tied something to my family farm that I grew up on. There are so many questions here. What is the Mount Keith Chalice? And how did one of Ireland's oldest Catholic relics end up in London? What really happened on that farm? Look, I I don't know how to answer all of these questions just yet. But for starters, why were British soldiers even hunting priests in the first place? Okay. Uh, My name's Diane Hall. I'm an Associate Professor of History at Victoria University in Melbourne, and my research is on Irish history. When did you first get interested in Irish history? (laughs) (laughs) I did a a Master's and a PhD in in Irish medieval history and uh, just kept going, really. Yeah. I like it. You start in the dark ages and just keep going, keep going until you hit the present. That's right. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Like millions of Australians actually myself included here, Diane has Irish heritage. Um, This chalice was made, to the best of our knowledge, in 1590. In 1590, what was the dynamic between Ireland and and Britain? Well, 1590 was the end of the 16th century, and the 16th century was a time of huge turmoil and change in both England and Ireland, particularly around religion. Yes, religion. Or rather, two interpretations of the same religion. We're talking about Catholicism on the one hand and Protestantism on the other. How did this happen? Well, the very truncated version of it is some years earlier, King Henry VIII in England wanted a divorce and the Catholic Pope said no. So Henry set up his own church, the Protestant Church of England, which was now being imposed all across the British Isles, including very Catholic Ireland. So we've got a situation in Ireland where the majority of the people are still Catholic. They're not particularly loyal to the English crown. They're seen by the English forces as being barbaric, um, uncivilised, and in need of making to be loyal, to be part of the um, the English system. Monarchs, as they tend to in these times, changed in England over the next few years. But just like Jerry said, in Ireland, 
things get worse. These conquests and really brutal, brutal wars in Ireland and the Catholic Church is supposedly being suppressed. What follows is years of rebellion, wars and unrest. To finally quell this ongoing rebellion, the British set up a series of laws known throughout Ireland simply as the Penal Laws. You're describing a range of laws that were passed from the 1690s to about the 1730s. And those penal laws were, so there's a range of different ones. Men can't, Irish men can't own a horse, which means therefore they can't fight because you need to have a horse to be in the, to be a leader in the army. So they can't own a horse worth more than five pounds. They can't carry weapons. They can't stand for office within civil society. And, which is the one that most people sort of really focus on, priests are banished and they're not allowed to practice the Catholic religion and they're not, they're not allowed to practice the mass, even though the majority of people are still Catholic. It's kind of not surprising that there's been centuries of disdain in the wake of that, isn't it? <laughs> when you frame it like that, it's like, oh, yeah, no, I can see it now. Yeah, I yeah, get it. And, and yes, absolutely. And when you when you put it like that so boldly, it's like, absolutely, why wouldn't the, the Irish rebel? So they were in place for about a century, these laws, till the end of the 18th century. But at the same time, there were priests who went around in Ireland and, and held mass, but they were sort of in hiding. They couldn't sort of advertise the fact that they were there and they would often uh, celebrate the mass outside or sometimes in people's houses, but mostly outside. It was safer. You could get a better lookout. And so there's a long tradition of places in the landscape where the mass was said during penal times, often in what's called mass rocks, so particular rocky parts of the um, landscape where the priest would come and people would come around them. So if that story of the chalice, the tree and the murdered priests is true, it happens somewhere in this rough window of the penal laws. So we're looking from 1690 to 1730, which is a pretty big window. And as for the chalice itself, Diane thinks it's kind of amazing that this one managed to survive those years. They're rare because of the fact that they couldn't be kept openly and churches had been emptied of all their goods that were valuable and they melted them down. So not many of them survived the Reformation. Some do, but not many. Which suggests somehow it was hidden. But there's also one other clue. It's got the name or it's got the initials of the person who commissioned it. Right, so on the base of the chalice is an engraved image of Christ on the cross. There's a very pirate-looking skull and bones situation. But also in Latin is this inscription that translates to C-O-K had me made in the year of our Lord, 1590. Now the last two letters of that acronym are really important because in County Cork, OK almost always means one thing. The O'Keefe's. It's actually an O'Keefe artefact. There's an inscription on it that says made for some O'Keefe person in the 1590s. Remember how I said that Jerry's family sold the farm? <laughs> so who's looking after the farm now? We actually sold it to our, to our, um, our neighbours who are very close with our neighbours, the O'Keefe's. 
So you have this story of a murder and a theft that has haunted this tree in the McCalla family farm. And then literally next door is the family who somehow commissioned the chalice back in 1590. But for Jerry, the O'Keefe's, they're not just neighbours. They're like family. And I remember their, let's say their grand-granny. I remember being sat down by my mom and my dad and being like, Nora O'Keefe actually isn't your grandmother. And I was very confused by this because she got me cakes at my birthday and bought me birthday presents and like looked after me when I was sick. I was like, this is all the major criteria fulfilled. So we're very close with them and uh, they took over the farm and, and they have it now at the minute, yeah. We did not get Nora, which is a shame because I like cake. But among the 12,000 O'Keefe's in County Cork, not kidding, one O'Keefe has dug deepest on this mystery. But uh, yes, I know I know Jory and Jory's family extremely well. My name is Morty O'Keefe, and I live in Newmarket in southwestern Ireland in County Cork. I think you're interested in the O'Keefe's, so um, this would be the centre really of O'Keefe country. That being said, there's a lot of O'Keefe's around the world. I think about um, ten, nearly eleven thousand Irish. O'Keefe's in Australia, and we only have 12 in Ireland. So, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) uh, the Australian O'Keefe's are pretty much as big to us as our own Irish O'Keefe's are. Wow, I didn't realise that at all. You're a huge part of our diaspora. This chalice has been part of Morty's life for, well, let's just say it's been a while. As a child, I grew up quite close, actually, to where that incident happened. And um, before the chalice was ever discovered in London, I would have been hearing that story. Okay. It was well-known local tradition. I even knew where the two priests were buried. We do know that the chalice was made for the O'Keefe's. They were a relatively wealthy O'Keefe family. They were Catholics, and as Catholics, they were unentitled to, to have land. So they became Protestants, and they did that. As Protestants, they were allowed to, and they did, buy land close to Newmarket, in a place that later be called Mount Keefe, after themselves. And they were very successful and did quite well there. And they built up a lot of uh, influence locally, which allowed them to have a, be a relatively a safe house for something like the Chalice, because they wouldn't be raided in the same way that the local Catholics would be. So they were able to hold and lend the chalice to the local Catholics. Also, of course, they had another interest in that, in that they needed a lot of labour help for their farm, which was a fairly big farm, and they needed the goodwill of the locality to do that too, which, you know, being friendly with the local Catholics, even though they were of the same tradition themselves, was all important. And they gave their chalice to those Catholics to say their mass, but of course mass was illegal and it was uh, forbidden by the British. So the story is that there was a raid made by the British and that's when the chalice vanished. No one locally knew anything of the chalice until about 1961 when it showed up in the museum in London. Was there any documentation at the time? Like, did it get written down that this happened or is it an oral tradition? It's an oral tradition. Without any kind of documentary evidence, 
a lot of this stuff is hard to prove. But at the very least, is it plausible? Yes, absolutely. A variety of things like this did happen, yes. It is plausible that this chalice might have been used in the mass in a similar situation at this tree. It's plausible there was some sort of an attack that meant that that had to disappear, whether it was taken by a British soldier, that's possible, um, or it was kept then by the hereditary keeper of it and they kept it safe, they, they kept it hidden. Why would a British redcoat soldier have wanted this? Is it simply because it was liable to be valuable or was it's the it's the part where they take it that I'm kind of wrapping my head around? Because if it's considered to be an outlaw, like a relic of an outlaw religion, what's the value in a British soldier taking it? Well, I think that's the lesser plausible explanation of why it would become hidden, um, that a British soldier would take it. I would have thought if a British soldier took it, they would disdain the fact that it had significance and would only see its value as a as a precious object and melt it down or sell it. It wouldn't have value as a holy object to, to a Protestant British soldier who was there to keep the Irish Catholics suppressed. That's why I think that's probably a less plausible explanation of why it went out of sight. Even so, we have this gaping hole in history between at least the end of the penal laws in the late 1700s, right up until the 1960s, when someone realises it's at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, that is a a 200-year gap where the chalice just disappears. So maybe the solution is to go backwards through time, right? Like, let's start at the museum where it is today. How did they get the chalice? Well, it turns out they've had it since the 1920s. And the gallery actually bought it from a woman, Ms. L. Purcell. Yeah, otherwise known as Auntie Lulu. Searching for Auntie Lulu will send you under a stone arch that, I'm not going to lie, it looks like the gate to a bloody castle. Then you move along a long driveway wreathed in trees. And through that tunnel of leaves, that is where Burton Park reveals itself. So, could I just get you to, to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, Mark. I'm Walter. My surname is Ryan Purcell. And we're at the home here of the Purcells and the Purcell family. Our family have been here since the early 1800s. Family, including one Ms. L. Purcell, who until 1929 had our chalice. Okay, so it was built in 1650. So it's four stories. The mansion is seven ornate windows across. And these creepers reach around the grey masonry right up to the attic windows. Where the children used to be um, kept up there. Little babies used to be kept there on wet nurses and stuff. And we're actually standing on the lawn, which was the lawn tennis court many, many years ago. And the poor children used to look out of those top windows um, and see their parents and friends playing tennis down here on the lawn. So, what are your earliest memories of this place? Oh my goodness, well, I was born here. My father inherited this place from his aunt Louisa, or Auntie Lulu, as she was better known. It's an amazing building. It's got a lot of um, history here. Uh, My father used to say, when you come into the lodge at Burton Park, it's like coming into the Garden of Eden and leaving the the big bad world outside 
So this, the atmosphere here in Burton Park is special. In case you haven't gleaned it from Walter's accent, this place that was home to the chalice is not in England. It's in Ireland. In fact, it's a 27-minute drive from the McCullough family farm chalice tree. So the chalice, would, would it have been kept in this building here before the family sold it to the V&A Museum? Well, just on the left-hand side of the building... Walter is pointing to a private chapel built into the side of the mansion. That's the oratory. And we're just in front of the stained glass window where they would have celebrated Mass with the Mount Keefe chalice. And I was baptised and married in there. So why did the chalice leave Burton Park with Auntie Lulu to end up at a British museum? I'd say I know the reason for that. My great-uncle Charles and Raymond, the two of them, were in the First World War. So Walter's two great-uncles go off to war, but only one of them comes back. That's Uncle Raymond. My great-uncle Raymond, he was quite wealthy and he, did, he was terrifically good-looking. He never married, apparently. The women of the world used to be running after him and he was, he was wealthy and he didn't have to worry about a whole lot other than his wounds after the war. Nothing to worry about. Right up until there was something to worry about. So once, one day he went to the bank and there was no money left. While Raymond was living it up, the family believe his banker and his solicitor were embezzling money. In some way or other, they managed to lose all my great-uncle Raymond's money. That's, that's all I know about it. And it turns out Uncle Raymond did really have to worry about those wounds. They turned gangrenous and things went down for him pretty fast. So when he died in 1928, his sister Lulu, who was living here, didn't have a whole lot of money. So I imagine she had to sell what she could sell at the time to keep Burton Park, keep it going and stay in the place. So I reckon that's why she sold it in 1929 in the auction and she got £400 for it apparently, which I imagine was a huge amount of money at the time. So it is kind of amazing that your family had the chalice to sell. I'd say it was a gift from God, I'd say. (laughs) If Auntie Lulu hadn't sold the chalice in 1929, if she didn't have it to sell, she may have had to sell the house and farm and we wouldn't be here today. And if Raymond's great-auntie Lulu hadn't sold the chalice, literally hundreds of lives would have been worse for it. So Raymond's family don't actually live here in this park anymore. They've actually handed this land to a mental health charity. People that have had mental, what do we call them, illnesses or upsets, um, have come out of institutions and they come and stay here. Lots of counselling, etc. And... This just adds to the whole history of Burton Park. Isn't it so amazing that just in a sort of a flick of a switch, history can be, can change or, or can carry on? It's, it's incredible what happens. So the Purcells sell the chalice to the v Museum, literally saving the farm. So the next step back into history has got to be 
Where did the Purcells get the chalice from? So what I've heard about it and learnt about it is that my families must have gone to the auction of the Day family in Cork and bought the Mount Keefe chalice in 1915. The Day family. Specifically, one man in the Day family. He was a, a kind of a historian, Cork historian guy called, I think his name is Robert Day. Robert Day. Um, he was an antiquarian. Antiquarian or whatever, you know, like a kind of <laughs> a beautiful Victorian job description that doesn't happen anymore. Something with a top hat. Yeah, and a monocle. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he was based in Cork, actually. He was a kind of a historian. He wasn't just a historian. This Robert Day character, he was in fact the president of the Cork Historical and Archaeological Society and arguably wrote, researched and knew more about Cork artefacts than any other person of the era. And he he seems to have collected it. There was a five-day auction of his collectibles after he died, so probably, although you wouldn't say definitely, collected it in the Cork area. Um, Where it was is, I, I don't know. It's not unusual that things went to ground and were then found or collected or passed on in the 19th century to antiquarians, historians, um, people who were interested in it. Often, I'm not saying this happened with this particular chalice, but often what happened with valuables that had been kept in families, kept in Catholic families like precious manuscripts and um, other precious objects, is that they were looked after by um, sort of hereditary carekeepers, passed down generation to generation. And then when you get to the 19th century, politically things are more stable in some ways. People are much, much poorer their terrible poverty and then you but you've also got these middle class um, fairly prosperous uh, Protestant often Robert Day um, was I'm pretty sure Protestant um, interested suddenly interested suddenly there's a market for these objects these manuscripts these chalices these precious objects and people not unnaturally sold them because they needed the money here's the thing The Cork Historical Society have digitised almost everything that Robert Day wrote. And he wrote a lot about his artefacts. And I've been through everything I can find. Do you know what he wrote about this chalice that is so crucial to this area? Nothing. Not a word. Um, Why did he not write about that chalice when he did write about other chalices and other artefacts he had? We don't really know how Robert Day came to have it. That too is a mystery. If it was kept hidden by the O'Keeffe's of old, we may never know how Robert Day actually got a hold of it. And as for whether British soldiers took it, I can't quite see the evidence for it. Now you can see this is the chalice tree, quite quite an impressive tree, standing just off centre of the field. I don't know how else to describe it, but... The chalice tree is sad. The sky is flat and overcast, but you can make out the marbling in the clouds, threatening to get darker. And standing underneath is local historian Raymond O'Sullivan. For years, he's been inviting people to take a closer look at the history of this tree. You know, I, I should tell you at this stage, just as an aside, that I'm not a historian. My formal training was in archaeology. 
and we were always taught to put our fines at one side and we kept our interpretation on a different side. And that's the thing with the Mount Keith chalice. There's interpretations of what happened here and then there's provable facts. We want to keep the two things separate because all we know about the Mount Keith chalice is that it was made in 1519. It turned up in an auction in 1916. And in between is just a gap filled with myth and rumours. Exactly. And, and if when you examine them, they don't fit together very well at all. No, but within those myths and legends, we do know that those priests were actually murdered. That is true. They're buried in the field, in the adjoining field. And given what was going on, those murders happened around... You know, around maybe 1650. But whether or not they had the Monkeef chalice, I think, is, is debatable. They wouldn't be travelling with valuable chalices. Or they wouldn't be travelling with loads of vestments and things like you'd see in a cathedral today. I'd say they'd be travelling incognito. And in some of the stories, it was they dug a hole and buried it there. When they said, can you imagine trying to dig a hole to bury a chalice when there are redcoats coming down the hill with fixed bayonets? Those are fairy tales. People can come up with these cock and the bull stories, but if you examine them, they don't, they don't fit, Mark. So perhaps instead of treating it like a jigsaw, why do these myths and legends grow? Like, what sparks them? And for this story, it always comes back to the thing that is right in front of you. It's this tree. For as long as anyone has recorded, this tree has been known as the chalice tree. So Raymond and the owner one day decided they would have it dated. That tree didn't even start growing until about 200 years after the priests were murdered there. So it's much, much younger than the story of the priests. I'd feel quite safe in saying that that tree is no more than 200 years old and no less than 150 So why did the priests and the tree become attached over a century ago? That's a time of increased Irish nationalism. We're not just the barbarians that the English say that we are. Our history goes back a long time. The reason we are in this position of poverty and we can't govern ourselves um, is because of all the things the British did. The story of the chalice and the priests is born and grows with this tree. The fact that it's there, the fact that it has that name... It kind of um, keeps alive the tradition. If there was no tree, if there was no um, actual thing like that, it might have been forgotten. There were centuries of things being stolen from the Irish people. Their language, their religion or attempted religion, land, their dignity, um, their ability to, to rise in the world. All those things you could certainly argue were stolen. Stories like this certainly illustrate that. I've been thinking a lot about my very, very Irish grandparents. When I was very young, I used to spend every weekend at their house pottering around. And actually, technically speaking, I'm considered an Irish citizen. Where were your grandparents from in Ireland, if you don't mind me asking? That's a good question. You know, I've got the paperwork here somewhere. Turns out it was Tullow and Tipperary, where my family's from. And I do love every time I tell somebody that, they try and find me cousins I don't know. There are Fernells in Limerick and there are Fennellys that I know in Cork. The thing is, my memory of my grandparents is that they never had anything nice to say about Ireland. To be honest, I think they were happy to escape the lack of opportunity back then. Which only really made sense to me when I asked Jerry what he would like to see happen with the chalice. Um, that's a really good question. I would just like it to be kind of used as... Par- uh, rather than just random artefacts that's just kind of stuck 
next to loads of other random article, artifacts, like using a narrative about the penal times in Ireland and how that is still impacting into Irish culture and Irish identity kind of to this day. According to Raymond, at least, the legacy of those penal laws is a nation scarred. It was left with centuries of disadvantage. One of the penal laws said that if you had a farm, you couldn't pass it on to your eldest son or to one son unless he was a Protestant. If the family remained Catholic, you had to divide the land between all of your sons. And they had to divide the land between all of their sons. By the 1840s, the country was full of small little holdings. And those tiny plots also fueled one of Ireland's most infamous clichés. And people living in those holdings, 60% of the population of the country at that stage could have been dependent on potatoes alone for three meals a day. A million people left the country at that stage and another million died of hunger and disease. Raymond points to some distant rubble. You see, there was a little village here at one stage in the road. And a lot of those villages disappeared around the time of the famine. And it was all as a result of those penal laws. And that's what happened in Ireland. The history of Ireland was a struggle, wasn't it, for so many centuries. But now people have just uncovering all of this history. It's putting pieces together and just making sense of it all. When so much has been taken, systemically, there's a human desire to want to make sense of it. And that's what the Chalice Tree story is. The need to put the fragments of history into some sequence so that it means something. The people who told this story from around this area were able to see the huge events going on around them through their knowledge of what happened at this particular tree to this particular chalice. Whether it actually happened or not is not particularly important, but it's that they understand all these big events that happened through their personal and local history. Stuff the British Stole is produced by Zoe Ferguson. It was made with the help of Leah Simone Bowen at CBC Podcasts. Mixing by Hamish Camilleri. The executive producer is Amrutha Slee, and the head of society and culture for ABCRN is Julie Browning. Very special thanks to Dermot McIntyre and Richard Gervin. This is a production of ABCRN in partnership with CBC Podcasts. It was created, written, and edited by me. I'm Mark Fennell. And here's a hint for the next episode. Not an object, but treated like one.